Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. I want to start a new series with you this morning. Um, We have recently completed a series that we entitled The People of God Empowered. And the obvious question that begs to be both asked and answered in a series and in a title like The People of God Empowered is empowered for what? What is this all about? Why are we an empowered people? And Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus actually answered that question. And he said this, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be able to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all over Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the world. So Jesus talks about the power of the Holy Spirit coming on this people, that that they would be empowered for what he calls witness. Now, in evangelical circles, we have tended to limit that word witness to verbally sharing our faith. We talk about witnessing to our next door neighbor or witnessing to perhaps a work colleague. And I have no doubt that the word actually includes that, but it's most certainly more than that. And the reality is, unless there is a life well lived behind any verbal words of witness, they end up completely ineffective. There's an old adage that states, what you do speaks so loud that I can't hear what you're saying. And unless there's a life well lived behind any words of witness, in in some senses those words can do more harm than good. Your words are part of a larger package. And the core of that package is who you are at the center of your being who your character is, what you amount to. And so what I'm going to do uh, over these next few weeks, God willing, is do a series of messages explaining this idea, unpacking this idea of character and how God wants to do a work of transformation in it. So we are effectively just going to do an introduction to that idea this morning. Jesus' message in the gospel was without doubt revolutionary. A little boy in children's church once said, the Bible begins in Genesis and it ends in revolutions. He, of course, meant it ended in revelations, but at another level, that little boy was more right than he knew because the gospel message is revolutionary. And it starts in the first place with a revolution of the human spirit, of the human heart. At this level, it is a revolution that concerns the transformation of our inner lives, of our characters. Now, ultimately, that revolution that Jesus initiated will end with a transformation with the transformation of the entire cosmos, of the entire created order. And if you want to read more about that, just read the book of Revelation. Uh, Sorry, the book of Romans. Well, Revelation 2, Revelation 21, 22, the book of Romans chapter 8. We know that in Jesus, the future, this 
transformation of the created order has broken into the present. The end has stepped into the middle, as it were, and this revolution that ultimately will transform the cosmos has begun in you and I as his disciples. The transformation that we are promised at the end of the age has begun in you and me. We are to be the prototypes, if you like, of an ultimate transformation. We are the sign that the transformation has begun New creation has begun in you and me. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says this, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Literally in the Greek, the words he is a aren't there. And so Paul is saying, if any man is in Christ, new creation. He's saying, in effect, it has begun. The end has broken into the middle, and you and I are the signposts of that ultimate transformation that will take place. It's begun in us. The Christian life in the present, with its responsibilities and its callings, is to be understood and shaped in relation to that final goal for which we have been made and redeemed. The better you understand the ultimate goal, the big picture, then the better we can understand the pathway toward it, what's going on in our lives in the here and now. You know, for a lot of evangelical people, the goal is to go to heaven when they die. And so you say, well, what's the present about? And the present is conceived in sort of blurry terms. Don't lose that ultimate ticket that you have for entry into the greatest show on earth. Uh, the present is basically about treading water, about marking time until either, either he comes or we go. But the New Testament holds out something much, much richer than that, much more interesting. Yes, of course, those who follow Jesus in this life will go to be with him when he die. That is a promise made in the New Testament. But it isn't the end of the story. God has promised to give the entire world a makeover, renewed from top to bottom. Revelation talks about new heavens and a new earth. And the Bible promises that we, as followers of Jesus, will be given new bodies in which to live with delight and power in this new world. And God's future has broken into the present already. We are not simply marking time, waiting for the real show to begin. It's already begun. New creation has started in you and I. And the Holy Spirit is presently in the process of transforming us in our character, in the habits of our heart, so that we can be the kinds of people that will easily and naturally step into that new age when it's ultimately consummated. So the Holy Spirit is in the business of teaching you and I in advance the language and the character of God's new order. The new has begun. N.T. Wright, a wonderful Bible scholar, says this, the aim of the Christian life in the present time, the goal you are meant to be aiming at once you've come to faith, the goal which is within reach, even in the present life, anticipating the life to come, is the life of fully formed, fully flourishing Christian character. And so the purpose of this series, The People of God Transformed, is to examine the transformation that God wants to work in you and I as he's started this new creation in the here and now, in preparation 
for the then and there. So let me take you to a few scriptures just to kind of set the scene for this series to kind of lay down a, a, a little bit of a platform. Romans chapter 8, the chapter I mentioned before, verse 29 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Let me read the message translation. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as his son. He wants to shape our lives along the lines of his son so that in the King James, we would be conformed into the image of his son. In the simplest possible terms, God's eternal purpose for his people is that we should be like Jesus, okay? That's God's ultimate will for your life. One of the things that I've found out as I've journeyed is sometimes you think, Lord, what's your will in this? And you, you kind of have an idea of what the will of God might be. You go into it. Sometimes it turns out to be what you imagined. Other times it turns out to be a very, very different thing. Sometimes a little more disappointing, perhaps, than what you had envisaged. What I've come to understand in those moments where I think this isn't working out the way that I thought it would or should is that at the end of the day, I'm not out of the will of God because in any circumstance, God can use that that situation to conform me to Christ. So ultimately, I can't miss the will of God. Ultimately, wherever I am, he can work on me and I can respond and I can be made more like Christ. In the simplest possible terms, God's eternal purpose for you is to make you look like Jesus. Now, I think we can all agree that that will involve us being changed considerably. Now, the scripture indicates that this transformation that he's working will be both process and event, okay? The transformation process begins in the here and now in our character and our conduct through the work of the Holy Spirit. We see that, for example, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing, or the Greek has the idea of the renovation of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So there is, right at the beginning, a renewal or a renovation, a, a renovation process. Now, both renewal and renovation imply that it, this, is a, this is going to take time. This is not going to be done in one encounter, one event. Events might happen along the line, but there is a process by which we enter into this, pure, this, this idea of transformation. Now, the transformation will ultimately be brought to final completion in an event. When Christ comes, we see him as he is, and there will be a transformation at that moment. So there's a process that leads to an event. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, John says, What we know is that when Christ is openly revealed, we'll see him. And in seeing him, we'll become like him. In that moment, we will be made like him. Philippians puts it this way. We're waiting the arrival of the Savior, the Master, Jesus Christ, who will transform our earthly bodies into glorious bodies like his own. He will make us beautiful and whole with the same powerful skill by which he is putting everything as it should be under and around him. So there's a process going on. It will ultimately 
finish in an event when Christ comes. And Corinthians talks about it in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Process and event, ultimately a transformation that will make us like Christ. Now in this series, obviously we're gonna be talking about the process part of the equation. So I wanna go back to a scripture we read, Romans chapter 12 and verse two. Let me read it to you in the message. It says, don't become so well-adjusted. The older translations have, don't be conformed. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. So Paul says, don't let the culture in J.B. Phillips squeeze you into its mold. I notice that in this passage, Paul seems to suggest that you and I as human beings are imitative by nature. He, he seems to be saying, you will conform to something. Now, you can choose what it is that you will be conformed to, but in terms of being conformed, you don't get to choose. That's what we are, that's who we are by nature. A lot of us postmoderns kind of react to that. We imagine ourselves to be free agents. We can be authentically ourselves, chart our own course without anyone telling us how to do it or where we have to go. We postmoderns love Shakespeare's line from Hamlet, this above all to thine own self be true. But realistically, when push comes to shove, we are all somebody's disciple. We've all learned to live from somebody else. There are no exceptions. We all imitate. It's built into us to imitate. We all model ourselves on something other than our so-called authentic selves, at least at the beginning. I, I actually think it's one of the major transition points in life to recognize, to sit down and look at who it is that has taught us, who it is that has mastered us, who in fact we are disciples of, and then evaluate the results of their mastery and their teaching. And I, I know that can be a harrowing task. A lot of people simply cannot bring themselves to face that. However, if you can do it, it opens the door for you to choose other masters, better masters, and ultimately one master above all. So Paul is saying you will be conformed. It is the nature of the human species to be conformed, to be discipled, to be shaped. And Paul boils those options really down to two. He says you will be conformed by the forces of this age, or you will be conformed by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, bringing you toward God's will. Those are the two options, and they are, quite frankly, incompatible. They are in direct collision with each other. So Paul is exhorting the Roman congregation to whom he's writing and saying, don't allow the forces of this age to be the conforming force of your life. You can be transformed by submitting to the working of the Holy Spirit as he seeks for a start to renew your thinking patterns. 
The, the Greek word that Paul actually uses in this word, be transformed, is a word that you'll probably recognize. It's a word, a Greek word, metamorpho. And from it, we get the English word metamorphosis. For those of you who remember your fifth form science, that's the process that a caterpillar goes through as it is changed ultimately to be a butterfly. That word metamorpho is used four times in the New Testament. Twice in Matthew 17 and Mark chapter 9, it's used to describe the transfiguration of Jesus. That was the time when he went up the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and the Bible says he was transfigured before them. He was transformed before them. His whole body became incandescent, and the disciples were unable to look at him. They were so overwhelmed with the change that took place in Jesus, they fell to the ground. That metamorpho amounted to a tremendous, and to the disciples, an awe-filled change in Jesus. The other Two times that metamorpho is used is here in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, where it says this, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed, that's the word, into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Both of those two scriptures speak about a fundamental transformation of our characters, our conduct, away from the standards and patterns of the world and the age that surrounds us into the image of Christ himself. And although the word metamorpho is not used in other passages, there are other passages that speak about this point of not being conformed but being transformed. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 14, again the message translation says, don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil. The English standard version says, don't be conformed. Same language that Paul uses. Don't let this evil age just push you into its grooves of evil, doing just what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better then, but you do now. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life, a life energetic, blazing with holiness. That's the transformation process. Don't be conformed, be transformed. It's clear from the scriptures, at least in my view, that God is seeking to do a deep, profound work of transformation in you and in me, in our characters. So let's, let's be clear as we go into the series what we're talking about, that we're both on the same page in terms of our understanding. What do I mean by that, by character? When I say he wants to transform your character, what are we talking about? Let's determine for a start what I'm not saying. Character has to be clearly distinguished from other terms like personality, or image, or reputation, or celebrity. We aren't talking about transformation of those things. When I talk about character, when, when you apply the word character to a person, you're referencing that essential stuff that the person is made of. Obviously not flesh and blood and bones, but that, but that inner reality in which the thoughts, the speech, the decision, the behavior, and the relations of the person are rooted. Character is about who a person is consistently, because sometimes we'll say, whoa, that was out of character. 
What we're saying is that isn't who they consistently at the core of their being are. So when we're talking about character, we're talking about who a person is consistently at the core of their being. It is that internal overall structure of the self that's revealed by our long-run patterns of behavior and forms of action. These forms of action which more or less rise automatically out of our character. So as such, character determines behavior just as behavior demonstrates character. That's what we're talking about, God transforming. The opposite idea of this deep inner core of character is is superficiality. And I would venture to suggest that superficiality is one of, if not the distinguishing feature of our age. Richard Foster calls it the curse of our age. As a postmodern people, we are miles wide and inches deep. We are consumed with muchness and manyness. We do Twitter and Instagram rather than read anything substantial. For some people, substantial reading is new idea or woman's day. People have hundreds of friends on Facebook and ironically nobody with whom they can sit and intimately, authentically share their hearts. Now I might sound like a grumpy old man here, but it seems to me like most of our magazines and TV shows are little more than pop cultural sludge. They seem to me to be pathetically filled with inane storylines about completely inconsequential people. The bumper sticker that says, surface is the new deep, is wrong. I'm sorry, surface is not the new deep, surface is the same old shallow. Our our age is preoccupied with image, with style, with perception. There was a time in the not too distant past when style and substance were inextricably linked, but no longer. Today, style has become, in and, uh, has become an end in and of itself. And style is the art of skillfully packaging illusions and then projecting them with confidence. It's making up a Facebook page that actually is nothing like you are. And the world does it with regularity. Vogue's famous editor, Diana Vreeland, her motto was, fake it, never worry about facts, project an image to the public. And over the years, this has dramatically affected our culture. Today, we no longer have heroes. We have celebrities. Celebrities like the Kardashians. I can... (laughs) I've never seen the... the, I've never seen the program. I I didn't even know if it's on New Zealand TV. But you can't read a newspaper these days without them being on the front of it, or or their extended family, Bruce or or Caitlin, or whatever his or her name is. I'm not putting them, I'm not, that wasn't meant to be a cheap shot, okay? Uh, I'm I'm not making fun of that. I'm sorry if it sounded as if it was that, but I'm not. But this family occupy our, our news, like, and we should be interested, why? I mean, they are well-known for being well-known. They're famous for being famous. Their notoriety comes from being notorious. I, I don't know if they've done anything that's substance. And as, as I say, I'm not putting them down. I think they are a reflection of our culture. Rather than laugh at them, we should weep at ourselves that, quite frankly, we're interested 
Heroes were once distinguished by their achievements. Celebrities are distinguished for their image. Heroes used to make history. Today, celebrities make TV shows, CDs, score touchdowns, and hit sixes. The hero used to be a big person. The celebrity is simply a big name. Famous people used to have private secretaries that somehow performed or formed a protective barrier between them and the public. Today, they have press secretaries or spin doctors to keep them properly in the public eye. You know, the thing is, the very agency that makes the celebrity in the long run destroys them. They are destroyed as they are made by publicity. They live and die not by the sword, but by the paparazzi. The modern emphasis in our culture is on personality, on image, not on character. We are far more concerned with resumes, with skills, with appearances, with public impressions, rather than with the deep issues of our character. And I want to just say to you, the church is not exempt from this. The church is not exempt from this cultural pull towards and the temptation to superficiality and image. I've been concerned for some time, and whenever I do get the opportunity to speak to leaders, I often talk to them about the quest for excellence that I hear all the time. I see conferences on how to have excellent music, how to have excellent communication, how to be excellent. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not some kind of pastoral Bart Simpson who says, oh, let's be average or below. You know, let's, let's aim for average or below. What I'm afraid, though, is that in our quest for excellence, we actually don't know what excellence is in terms of its scriptural roots. If you check the scriptural roots of excellence, you'll find it's related to character, to service. It's not about projecting a flashy image. I think, like Vogue, we've given into the temptation to project an image to the public. Just a thought. I think excellence has to come out of who we are, a genuine expression of our character. As I say, I'm not aiming for average or below. I think excellence is something to be aimed at so long as we understand where it comes from, what it's rooted to. And if it's simply about lights, mirrors, smoke machines, and fabulous music, and super friendly greeters, and just this image that we're seeking to project, then we've missed the boat. I saw an article in Newsweek magazine in my substantial reading. Um, just <clears throat> better than Vogue, sometimes. Um, it had an article that, in an, in an incredibly interesting and quite novel way, um, talked about the rise of image and superficiality in our culture, and it chronicled it by considering the rise of plastic surgery in our culture. It made the observation that plastic surgery, when it began, was an attempt to humanely treat wartime injuries. But over the years, it's grown into a multi-billion dollar industry, primarily practiced on those in good health without any medical necessity. Decades ago, by the way, such treatment would have been regarded as grossly self-indulgent, if not an actual violation of the Hippocratic Oath. But this is what Newsweek asked. What lies behind this huge cultural shift in thinking about plastic surgery? 
One possible suggestion was that over the last century and a half, life has changed dramatically from largely rural to overwhelmingly urban. Small, stable, face-to-face relationships have given way to superficial, largely anonymous acquaintances. The inevitable result is an accompanying shift from an emphasis on internal character to external appearances. In a world in which first impressions may be all there is, plastic surgery becomes a natural resort. And the article amusingly but very perceptively concluded by asking, the underlying question still lurks, are we dragging down character as we lift everything else up? I don't think the jury's out on this. I think the jury has brought home a decision and has been dismissed. Character is gone. In our age, people are clearly not interested in character. Character has been jettisoned for image. I constantly hear people making what I consider to be inane remarks about some political figure who has shown himself to be completely untrustworthy by betraying the deepest, most intimate relationship, that between husband and wife. They've cheated on their wives. And I hear people making inane comments like, I don't particularly care what goes on in their private lives. Let their private lives remain private just so long as they can do their job. As if somehow there is this complete disconnect between who they are and how they function. It's like, duh, excuse me? Do you think that they're going to be trustworthy in this setting when they have shown themselves at the deepest level to be completely untrustworthy? What would, what, would you, what would make you think that? I mean, ancients like Plato would have been horrified by such a separation of public performance and private character. To him, statecraft was soulcraft. Statecraft is an extension of soulcraft. How they function will always be a reflection of who they are. James Wilson said this, in the long run, the public interest depends on private virtue. What you are in your private character inevitably will be who you are in your public perception. You can, you can create persona for a while. You can get your spin doctors to create image for a time. But ultimately, who you are will leach out. I think Jesus and the writers of the New Testament would completely line up alongside Plato on this issue. In fact, Jesus put it this way. You can't whisper one thing in private and preach another, the opposite, in public. The day is coming when those whispers will be repeated all over town. You might know it from what is whispered in the dark will be shouted from the housetops. And that is not just what you say verbally. That is who you are. Who you are leeches out. And what you do is an extension of who you are. Again, when I'm talking to leaders, I'll often say something like, ultimately the church will look like you because you will leech out. And the organization that you lead ultimately will be an extension of who you are and what you value. This issue of character is fundamental. It's profound if we're going to influence and change our world, we aren't going to do it superficially. superficially. We aren't going to discover some keys external to ourselves. Any keys that God gives us has to be linked and locked into a life well lived. If 
we, the people of God, are going to be a force for transformation in our world. We have to be examples of transformation. And the Holy Spirit comes to start on you and me. And the essence of this series will be about how God wants to do that. What does he do to start this process of change in us? How can we respond to this process of change? How can we be the kind of people that God wants us to be? Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.